He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right. Thanks, Jake. So I, I just wanted you guys to, to hear that because it's, it's just sweet. It's just sweet poetry. Like it's just a it's just a cool text that we're in tonight. And here I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you my big idea right up front. You ready for this? It's super profound. Jesus is like really big. There it is. Okay? That's that's where we're going tonight. And and that's what I want you to see. And and here's the thing, like I our like little like cultural Christian things we do drive me nuts sometimes. So like Every picture that I've seen of Jesus is like in like some grandma's house with like the thick frame and it's like white Jesus, like white hippie Jesus and he's like petting a lamb and just kind of looking creepy. And, and Jesus wasn't white, by the way, just so you know, Middle Eastern dude. I don't think he was a hippie, but he looks like a hippie in every photo. And he's just, he, he just looks kind of like a wimp. Like he just looks like I could kind of take him, which is, I shouldn't be able to take Jesus, right? Like, and... And it bothers me. And so I was thinking about this. And yes, is Jesus gentle and kind? Did he call the, the kids to come to him? Did he do all that? Yes. But that's not all that he is. So I was at the zoo one time and we were at the lion pen cage, whatever it is. And there was like this, this cutout in there where it was, it was completely surrounded by glass. So you could walk in and be like surrounded by lions. And there's just like a pane of glass in front of you. And there was like this three-year-old kid that was standing there. And then there was just a lion on the other side of the glass, just staring at him. And this, this kid was literally like booping the lion's nose. Like he's just like, was like poking it, you know, and he's just doing this. And the lion's eyes are just getting bigger and bigger. And then the kid like does it one more time and the lion stands up on his hind legs, opens his mouth and like slams it against the glass, like tried to eat the kid. And the three-year-old kid just goes, whoa, and steps back and just falls over. <laughs> Jesus is like a lion. Like if he showed up here, like that's the response that you would have to him. And I, and I want to talk about Jesus looking like that. And I just, can I just ask you like, all right, so some of you have been in church for a while and you've heard some of this stuff. Can you just like not just kind of overlook it because you've heard it before? Would you just lean in and maybe see that like normal truths might actually transform your life? That maybe your perception of him needs to be tweaked a little bit? So Jesus is this, this lion 
So verse 15 and 16, and we're in Colossians 1, if you want to flip there. Otherwise, we're going to have it up on the screens as well. Um, actually, let me, let me back up. So, so this is how I want to get at kind of this big nature of Jesus is essentially I want to show you that Jesus is supreme and then he's sufficient. That Jesus is supreme and that he's sufficient. So in other words, that Jesus is really big and he has everything that you need. He can satisfy. Okay, so we're going to start out with supreme and I want to show you that he's the image of God and that he's in control and that's why he's supreme. So verse 15 and 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, through him and for him. Jesus is the origin and the goal of the universe. Literally everything is through him and for him. There's this quote by this, this dude, Abraham Kuyper, that I think like explains that text really well. It's so simple, but I think it's for profound. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, that just means in control, who is sovereign overall, does not cry, mine. Everything's his. Verse 16 says, all things were created through him and for him. All right, I want you guys to do me a favor. Think of something that exists. Should be easy. Okay, you got it? Something that exists. Jesus made that. It's for him. It's his, like, like before molecules and energy and, and time itself existed, Jesus was there. And, and when he just felt like it, when he like just decided it was time, he spoke existence into existence. And in this kind of explosion of light and energy and matter, the universe was born simply because Jesus wanted it to be. Verse 19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is God. And, and I know you kind of know that, but I'm asking you if you like know that. So, so I, you guys have maybe heard that of the idea of the Trinity. There's the... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I, and I think we tend to think of it as like, there's like this God stuff, and then it's like broken up into three parts, and that maybe like God the Father is like the most important, and then there's kind of, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not quite fully, like Jesus is fully God. Every aspect of divinity is in Jesus. And here's the thing, we can't even come close to understanding that. Like, we can't, like, do you ever just sit around and think about, like, eternity or, like, what it would mean to be outside of time? Maybe you don't. Maybe I just do that. I do that. And it, like, I, it's like the same feeling as getting a brain freeze. Like, my brain just freaks out and shuts down. We can't comprehend how big God is. Like, like it's infinitely harder for you to understand the gap between your knowledge and God's knowledge than, than like a one-year-old trying to understand advanced physics or differential equations. But here's the thing is like the unknowable God wants to be known. And so he, he had to put himself in terms that we could kind of start to understand. And this giant big God decided to become this like incredibly vulnerable thing 
God became a baby. Like, God became a crying baby. That's, that's insane. And, and there's this quote that I think, like, sums this up really well. And from all the people in the world, it's from Bono. So I didn't think I was going to quote Bono at Salt Company, but I'm about to. So this is, this is Bono's quote about this, this idea of God becoming a baby. The idea that God, if there's a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw and poverty. A child, like, like I just thought, wow, just the, the poetry Unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable. There it was. I was sitting there and and tears came down my face and I saw the genius of this. Love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. Bono, who knew? The quote that I love in there is unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable. Why? Why did God do that? Because he wanted to be known. He wanted you to know him. And and here's what I'm afraid of is that some of you that have heard some of this stuff your entire life know some abstract facts about God. You have a concept of God that you know about, but you don't know him. God is a person. He's a, he's a personal being. And, and I just, I just want to ask you, like, do you just know about him or do you know him? And has that knowledge of him changed your life? So Jesus is the image of God. That's why he's supreme. The second reason why he's supreme is that He's in control. He's in control and you're not. Verse 17, in him all things hold together. Okay, Jesus perpetuates the existence of literally everything. So like right now, Jesus is responsible for the movement of like a random electron in your brain and he's holding Jupiter in orbit. Right now. And and if Jesus for one second stopped holding the universe together, it would explode in on itself. It's dependent on him. It's his. And here's the deal. If you make something, you get to do whatever you want with it. Jesus owns everything. And so he gets to do whatever he wants, which means that he's in control. But here's the thing. I I think we, we struggle to believe that. We struggle to actually live as if he were in control. So let me, let me ask you, what, what makes you anxious? Like, what just makes you, makes you nervous? Like, when life gets a little crazy, what makes you crazy? When you start to, like, freak out. For me, like, I... On one hand, I get anxious when there's just too much stuff to do, right? And so, especially with like, 
kicking off this, this church, there's like a lot of new stuff on my plate and I just feel that like I can't juggle all of that. But I think there's something even deeper than that where I kind of go in these spirals where I start to get nervous about something and then I analyze it and all of a sudden I'm like anxious that I'm anxious and it's just doing this weird spiral thing. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And here's why we were talking about this in my connection group last night. It's because I struggle to believe that God just like, that he just loves me and that he doesn't have this job description for me. Well, he does, but, but that what I do overflows out of that love that he has for me, right? And so this is what I think is like, I have to do all of this stuff and these people have to get saved and people have to, to show up to Saul Company. We have to make sure that this thing is going really well and that people like it. And so I, I freak out about it and I freak out about sermons and I, it just becomes this thing because like, I think that that's on me. Like, I, I think that where you're at in your faith is on me. But I'm thinking like way too highly of myself there, right? Like whatever's making you anxious, it, here's what's happening is you wanna control the world. You want the world to function the way that you want it to function. And when it's out of your control and you feel like you can't carry it, you can't handle it, you kind of freak out. And so for some of you, you feel like your life is just this perpetual, like you're just kind of juggling everything in your life and you're chasing after one thing or another and you're kind of constantly frantic. So my, uh, my family was in town this past weekend. My little nephew Landon is, is turning seven. And so we had a blast. We went out to Minnehaha Falls, which is just like gorgeous right now. You guys got to get out there. And we were walking down this path and, and Landon was hyped up on sugar and caffeine. Like the dude drinks coffee. He's seven. Like they only give him a little bit. But so me and Landon like got up and like drank coffee together in the morning. And then dude was just going nuts. And his, his mom is like a genius. So she, she essentially like needed to just like get him to run around so that he would burn some of the energy, just running him out like a puppy. And so she creates this game. We're on this path and there's these leaves falling and it's kind of windy. So they're blowing everywhere. And she's like, land and see how many leaves you can catch. And he's like, okay. And he takes off running. And so I'm watching Landon and he's, he's in the middle of all these falling leaves, but they're kind of moving. And, and I've said this before and I'm sticking to it. Kids are great, but they're just humans that are bad at being human. They don't know how to do it yet. And so he's like, he would be watching this leaf falling at him and he would get distracted by another one and he would take off and try and grab it, but he would never get there in time. So he's just bolting from leaf to leaf and never catching any of them. And so he just ran in circles and then eventually came back to us, just ticked off but he was tired and that was the goal. <laughs> and here's the thing, like, I feel like that's, that's like the way that some of you live your life. Like, like you have all of this stuff kind of going on throughout your life and you, you don't want anything to drop and you're kind of hurriedly panicking and chasing after things and trying to hold it all up. And, and you know when you're doing that, that you're trying to be God, right? Like, you know that you're trying to replace God with yourself. You don't want him to be in control. You want to be in control. And I just want to let you in on something. God is better at being God than you, turns out. And, and so I just want you, like, this, is, this truth has been so helpful for me 
Jesus is not running around. He's not anxiously trying to hold everything up. Jesus is sitting on the throne of the universe in peace. Like there's, there's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing that makes him anxious. He's just there and he's, he's holding the universe and it's not even hard for him. And, and I just want some of you to, to know what it's like to rest in him instead of resting in you. To let him be God of your life instead of you being God of your life. To let him be in control instead of you being in control. And so, I just want you to process, like, in what ways are you living like you're in control of your own life? And are you willing to give that to Jesus? Are you willing to just let him sustain you like he sustains the universe? But, but I think for some of that, for some of us, it's hard because the entire picture you have of authority of people in control is, is negative, right? So you had parents that were terrible or, or treated you badly, right? Or you had, you had teachers or coaches that were jerks to you. And so you have this idea of authority that it's just kind of abused and you can't trust it. But here's what I want, I want you to know is that Jesus isn't just in control, but he wants what's good for you. He isn't just supreme, but he's sufficient. He can satisfy everything that you need. And he wants to use his authority to provide for you, to be good to you. All right, so Jesus is supreme. Now I want to go to Jesus is sufficient. He's enough. Verse 20 and 21 say, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, pay attention to that. That's the description of you without Jesus. So are, like, I just want to ask the question, are you as good as you think you are or people tend to tell you that you are? Are humans basically good according to this passage? You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Have you guys seen Les Mis? Like either the, the movie or the show, or I tried to read the book, but it's a thousand pages. So I got halfway through and gave up, which I actually thought was fairly good. Still read 500 pages, I'll take it. Uh, it's a really good book. It's just like 500 pages too long. Um, but my favorite part in Les Mis, and some of you kind of know where I'm going with this, you've heard this before, but my favorite part in Les Mis is when the main character, Jean Valjean, gets out of prison. So this dude was, was thrown in prison for stealing a loaf of bread, and he gets out of prison, and he's, he essentially has nothing. And so he's walking through this city, and he's, he's knocking on doors, and he's trying to find a bed and some food, right? But here's the thing is he, he looks sketchy. He looks like he just got out of prison. And so 
people aren't having it and they're like, they're throwing rocks at him, they're insulting him, right? And there's this whole thing where it seems like he's about to, to give up and he's gonna, he's gonna starve, he's not gonna have a place to go. And then he knocks on this bishop's door. And to his surprise, the, the bishop opens the door and he welcomes him in. And then this bishop treats him with respect. He breaks out like all like the, the fine silverware, like, you know, like the dining sets that your grandma has that she brings out on Thanksgiving. Like bishop brings it out. And he calls him sir, and he's like respecting him. And so he's receiving kindness for the first time in his life. And so the bishop goes to bed, and, and Jean Valjean is, is sleeping, and he decides that he's going he's gonna to steal from this dude and take off. And so he, he sneaks into the bishop's room, takes his stuff, and he takes off, and he gets caught by the police. And at this point, it's like his life is over. He's going back to jail forever. Right? And so the police take him and they take him back to the bishop and, and they show the bishop like the, the stolen stuff. And, and what does the bishop do? If you've heard it before, you know what he does. Instead of condemning him, he looks at him and says, oh, you forgot the best stuff. Wait here for a minute. And he goes in and he grabs like his best silver and he, and he brings it out and he just hands it to Jean Valjean. He looks at the, the police officers and he's like, you guys can go. It wasn't stolen. I gave it to him. And, and Jean Valjean is changed by this like one act of grace, right? And, and this, is, this is what the bishop says to him. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It's your soul that I'm buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and I give it to God. That's what Jesus is like for you. You stole from him. You were supposed to image him. You were supposed to represent him in this world. And instead you took what he gave you and you used it for yourself. And you got caught and you got brought back to the one that you stole from. And instead of throwing you in prison for the rest of your life, he gave you more. And, and I think some of you guys know that like this idea, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, right? But what I want to tell you is he didn't just kind of erase the bad stuff, but he actually gave you in addition to that everything you need. He gave you his perfection. He gave you everything that he had. He let you have access to it. He added to the inheritance that you didn't deserve in the first place. That's what it means to be reconciled to God and what that means is, is if you trust Jesus, now you're holy, you're blameless. Like, can, like for you guys that have sensitive consciences, like, can you imagine what that'll be like to stand before God and he won't condemn you, he won't see your sin because he sees the perfection of Jesus. You're blameless. But here's the deal. We have a tendency to move on from that grace to think that we need something more than that. And, and that's actually a pretty key thought to the book of Colossians, okay? So, so you need to know that for this text tonight, but you actually need to know this for the whole series. So Colossians is, so the Bible's composed of, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible's composed of several books that were written by people, usually to churches, and so Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in this town of Colossae. It's, it's a real place. I've actually gotten to, to be there. They haven't es excavated it for some reason. It's just like a hill, but it's, it's, it's a real place. And Paul writes this letter, and it's an occasional letter. 
which what that means is he's writing it for a specific reason. And this is the reason why Paul wrote the letter is because there was these people that were coming into Colossae after they had heard about Jesus and they were saying, you have Jesus, you're a Christian, that's fine, but you need more than that. You need Jesus plus something. And, and we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but it was something along the lines of, you need Jesus plus these kind of religious practices to keep you in his presence. And then you need to have this kind of hyper spiritual experience and that'll make you a real Christian. And Paul wrote Colossians to say, nope, Jesus is everything you need. He's sufficient. But here's the deal. I think we're tempted towards some similar stuff to what they were saying to the Colossians. We're tempted towards kind of like, you could call it like next level Christianity. There's like, there's like Christians that accept Jesus and then there's like the real Christians that got it going on. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so next level Christianity or another way to put it would be Jesus plus something is what you need, right? So I, so I want to give you like three examples. Jesus plus hyper-spiritual experiences. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus really like anything else that you want, which I'll... I'll get more specific when we get to that. But the first one that we tend to kind of lean towards is we need Jesus plus hyper-spiritual experiences. I have been debating all week whether I was going to tell this story or not, and I decided to go for it. We'll find out if that was the right idea or not. I'm about to tell you about the weirdest night of my life. And was I socially awkward when I was young in college? Yes. Is Salt Company a cult? No. It's not, all right? You'll understand where I'm going when we get there. So, yep, yep. So I had my sophomore year of college, I got kind of bored with the run-of-the-mill run Christianity, and I decided that, like, we needed to take this thing up a notch. And, this, and my buddy Matt Klein was, like, all in on this. He's like, yeah, let's go. Like, these average Christians, like, they don't really know what they're doing. We got to make this thing happen. I was reading these books about revival. You guys know what a revival is? It's like these times throughout history where like a bunch of people became converted all at once and they had these like big spiritual experiences. So I was like, all right, let's make a revival, which is not how that works. <laughs> but I was going to do it because I'm an intense human and I was a lot more intense then. So all right, let's make a revival. The way we're going to make the revival is a 24-7 prayer movement. And I was hyped about it. And it, was that a bad idea? No. If you have enough volunteers to do it, but if you don't have enough volunteers and you're too stubborn to not do it 24-7, what ends up happening is you have the 3 to 6 a.m. shift every day. And you get sleep deprived and stuff starts to get weird. So Matt and I are in the prayer room and stuff's getting weird because we're sleep deprived. I'll just leave it at that. And we're kind of like into this prayer thing and it's like kind of intense. And so we concluded revival is happening. Intense prayer time equals revival in Jordan's sophomore brain that was sleep deprived. And so we start texting everybody we know and we get like 50 people there at like three in the morning. I don't know why they came. We just told them to come and they did. So there's like 50 people there praying, which is like kind of cool. And everybody's kind of excited. A lot of people are confused. Like, why are we here? What, what's happening? It's a revival. What does that mean? It's a revival. So, um, so I'm like, I'm praying and this girl walks up to me and I kind of, I kind of knew her. And like, I was kind of like feeling like she had some, some vibes that, that we should be dating. But I mean, which is understandable, right? So she comes up to me and she goes, God says, 
who do you say I am? And the I am is not like, who is God? It's like, who is she? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, you're Jessica? I don't, like, I don't, what are you talking about? And she's like, just pray about it. I'm like, all right. So I'm like, I'm like kind of praying about it. She's standing there awkwardly. And I don't, to this day, I don't know what happened. I was tired. But the word wife came to mind. And so if you ever get yourself in the scenario where you're about to say the following phrase, don't say it. I looked at Jessica and I said, um, you're going to be my wife? And she looks at me and she says, yep. And I was like, all right, guess this is going to be a thing. Guess this is going to happen. So I left thinking, all right, I got myself a wife. I got myself a revival. (laughs) And I went to Monday morning prayer the next Monday and I declared a revival. And it was a weird night. And luckily, Mark Aaron, like our retreat speaker, kind of came and he threw his arm around me and he's like, bro, like, you know you don't have to marry that girl, right? Like, if it happens naturally, like, that's fine, but you don't, like, have to marry her. I was like, oh, gosh, praise Jesus. This is great. (laughs) And so did I marry her? No, I didn't. Thankfully, I married Jessamy, which was a good decision. Here's my point. If you start looking for experience, you're going to chase something other than Jesus. Like I started with like, Jesus is amazing. I want to have this revival because he's amazing. And I ended with this weird thing. Because like Jesus wasn't enough for me, right? I, I, I didn't just want Jesus. I wanted this hyper spiritual experience. And maybe for you, it's not going to be as weird as that. No. It won't be as weird as that. But you guys are going to tend towards thinking you need a hyper-spiritual experience, whether that's you get up in the morning and you read your Bible and you think you have to feel something amazing or you have to have this like great worship session at Salt Company or you, you feel like you're going to have to feel God for the rest of your life. And what's going to happen is you're going to chase the experience instead of Jesus. And when you don't have the experience, you're going to walk away from him. You need Jesus, not an experience. And this is what I've learned about Christianity is that walking with Jesus is about just learning to enjoy him more than you enjoy anything else in life. Like through just the normal stuff of life. Like Jesus made everything, which means that everything can be worshiped for you. Everything is kind of spiritual in some sense. There's not like this sacred secular divide where these like kind of hyper spiritual things are good and then physical things are just like things you have to do. Like you can worship Jesus by going to class. Believe it or not, that's a thing. You can, you can worship Jesus through being a great employee. You can worship Jesus through enjoying a sunrise, through figuring out how to be dependent on him instead of anxious. One of the best worship sessions I ha- I've had of Jesus in the last year was cooking a medium rare steak with some buddies of mine. And I ate that steak and was like, God, you made cows. This is delicious and you're amazing. And I know there might be some vegans here. I've met more vegans here than like in the rest of my life combined. And you can worship Jesus through vegetables. It's just harder, but you can. (laughs) But like, just figure out how to enjoy him through like the normal stuff of life. Don't chase hyper-spiritual experiences. All right, Jesus plus hyper-spiritual experiences. Jesus plus good works. 
Jesus plus good behavior. Where in your life are you trying to prove yourself? Where are you trying to prove yourself either to God or to the people around you? We all do it, but I want to ask you why. Why do you feel like you have something to prove? Here's what I think. It's different for everybody, but I think at the heart of it is you want to be justified. You want to be reconciled. You want to prove that you're worth something, that you're okay. And here's the deal. If you trust Jesus, you already have been. Like you, you look back at the text, it says that he reconciled you. You don't reconcile you. Trust him to do that. Don't lean on yourself. All right, Jesus plus anything else. And what I mean by that is Jesus, like, like I want to be around Christianity thing, this Christianity thing, but I also need this in my life in order to be happy. Verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What will cause you to shift from the hope of the gospel, from this amazing news? When you think that something will be more satisfying than Jesus. Like, like here's the deal, is that Jesus is supreme. And anything else in your life that is supreme to you, anything else in your life that Jesus can't have or he can't touch or he can't request that you not do, that thing steals your affections from Jesus. Either he's supreme or something else is so every summer we, we make these phone calls to Salt Company alumni to kind of see how they're doing. And in general, they're encouraging. But every year, never fails, I talk to somebody who seemed like they were a Christian in college, seemed like they were pursuing their faith that now has nothing to do with it. And it breaks my heart every time. And it's very rarely this radical deconversion. And it's almost always that they got distracted by money, by sex, by a career, by their family, and they gradually, that thing became supreme to them instead of Jesus becoming supreme. And they lost their trust in that hope that he had given them. So I, I have this, this friend of mine that I really respected, and I, I still do respect him, but I really respected his faith, and, and we were tight. And then stuff started to get weird, and I started asking some questions, and long story short, I found out that he was living with his girlfriend, which if you haven't been around Christianity much, like God says that, that sex is good. It's a great thing in the context of marriage. Besides that, it's a destructive thing, right? So I talked to him about that. And, and it was like, all right, man, like, let's, let's get through this. Like, let's, let's figure out how to, how to work out of this. And what I eventually found out is he wasn't that interested in working out of it because he had been in it long enough that he didn't want to leave. It had robbed him of his hope and he didn't remember what it was like. And so eventually he cut me out of his life and he 
stop following Jesus. And some of you are on that path. Like, like you're, you're pursuing that lifestyle or you're caught up in pornography or other forms of sexual sin. And, and, and this is the solution people have given you your entire life. Stop that. Like I picture some like old grandma with like glasses in the church like slapping your hand like knock that off. It's not good. And guys, look, that's not going to cut it. It's not going to work. Why? Because ultimately you will pursue what your heart loves and what you think will make your life better. And if sex is supreme in your life, you're going to chase it. And, and, I, and look, I, I, I'm, I don't want to just kind of come down with this heavy hand. Like, I know what that's like to see sin as enticing. And in that moment, it's hard to believe that anything could be better than that. But here's what I want to say is like, like seriously, that's what you're going to do with your life? Like, like Jesus the God who is outside of space and time, who's indefinable and indescribable in his majesty, who became a tiny baby so that you could know him. The, the, the guy that was born in a barn and willingly died to make peace with you and became the firstborn from the dead so that you can have hope of a resurrection someday that offers you unconditional forgiveness. He relentlessly loves you. He offers you a new identity, a new life. He offers an unspeakably beautiful eternity full of adventure and wonder and joy. And you think you're missing out because you can't have sex for a couple years? No, like, like, have you ever thought that maybe he's not holding out on you? Maybe he's not being restrictive. Maybe he actually has a better life for you that he's calling you to. Maybe he's better at knowing what's good for you than you are. Will you trust him? And some of you guys realize the weight of your sin and, and, and you're afraid that you're gonna drift from him or that he's gonna leave you. And, and for some of you, the greatest sorts of doubt doubt that you have is not whether God exists, but whether he could actually love you and hold on to you. And, and this is what I want to say to you. Like, if Jesus can hold the planets in orbit, he can hold you. He's not surprised by your sin. He's not overwhelmed by it. If he can hold the universe together, he can hold you. Romans 8, 31 through 38 says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then jumping down to verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him... Nothing can touch you because he's both powerful and he's good. He's both supreme and he's sufficient and he gives us everything that we need and nothing rattles him. Nothing challenges his authority because all the fullness of God dwells in him and being hidden with Christ in God means getting that, getting him. So trust him. Don't wander from the hope that you have. Trust him. Let me pray. Jesus, you are 
indescribably awesome. And I would like panic if I saw you because I don't deserve to be in your presence. And at the same time, you've let me in. Like when people ask me how I know you exist, it's like, because I know you, like I talk to you and you talk to me and you, and you change me. And, and that's crazy, like that you've, that you've let us in and your indescribable authority, you've reconciled us in your presence, you've brought us in. And man, we just, we love you for it, Jesus. And we're thankful. And would you help us to see you as supreme? To not get distracted by other stuff that's competing for our love or our heart, but to humble ourselves before you and to believe that, that you know what's best and to give you control. And so I don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I, I know every person in this room, including myself, has stuff that we've like kind of tried to grasp for control. And, and would you just now, by your spirit, reveal that to us right now? Spirit speak. And now, Jesus, would you help us to let that thing go and to trust you with it? Love you. Amen.